Welcome to PostStatus Draft, the official podcast for PostStatus, a website with news and information for WordPress professionals. Today, Joe and I are back and we're talking about legacy WordPress and maintaining websites and updates and all the fun stuff that goes along with that. Um, if you are managing your own projects or making decisions on technology for the projects that you work on, uh, I think this will be a valuable episode for you. If you enjoy this podcast, you can get a lot more quality news and analysis from the PostStatus Club. Check out our current club members, site partners, and join the club on our website at poststatus.com slash club. You'll be joining more than 900 wonderful club members, and you'll never miss important WordPress news again. Also, keep in mind that as a member, you can list a job on the PostStatus job board. This is a new feature of PostStatus at poststatus.com slash jobs. And then be on the lookout for information about the PostStatus draft, not draft, this is draft, the PostStatus publish conference, uh, which is going to be in Atlanta, August 3rd and 4th. Uh, tickets are, and speakers are going to be online very, very soon. So sign up to get updates on that. Today, I want to feature one of our partners, SearchWP. SearchWP is a new partner to PostStatus. I'm very excited to have them. If you have been frustrated with WordPress search, then SearchWP will get you straight. Instantly improve your site search without writing code. SearchWP uses your existing search forms and results templates, so it just works. It integrates with WooCommerce, Easy Digital Downloads, Advanced Custom Fields, WP Job Manager, and many more. You can search PDF and document content, custom fields, short code output, taxonomy terms. You can wait, post titles and content, all sorts of stuff with SearchWP. It's a really great plugin. Super excited to have them on board. And uh, you can go to searchwp.com to learn more. And thank you to SearchWP for being a new PostSAS partner. Now, here's our show. Hey, everybody. I'm Brian, and I'm the editor of PostStatus. And I'm Joe. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CTO of HumanMade, and welcome to the PostStatus Draft podcast. And today we're going to be talking about maintaining legacy WordPress websites. Yeah, you know, I thought, uh, what's the most potentially boring subject we can think of <laughs> Start us on <laughs> after, after several weeks of not talking to each other? It's been a long time. Uh, it has been a while. Um, you're on the other side of the world, but not quite as on the other side of the world as you're about to be. That's true. Um, so you're we. I'm in Alabama, like normal. You're. Oh no, yeah, but I'm going to Tokyo next. I think that's closer to you than where I'm at. Is it? Now. It's closer to me, but further away in time, right? Oh, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so for all podcast listeners that have missed Joe, which they should have, um, <laughs> it's because he's like. T- f- 12 or 14 hours yeah, in a different been, time zone. It's been pretty difficult to get a matching up time and internet connection, actually. Internet is not that great in um, Indonesia. How difficult is that? I guess that's better for you with y'all's Australian contingent and people that work in the Far East, but that's not a huge percentage of the company, is it? And yeah, it's not. It's, it's like eight people or something like that, eight or nine maybe. Um, but mm-hmm. I think... It's pretty good because if you ever work from Australia, you'll realize what a a dead zone of a time zone that is. Really, you completely feel separated from the rest of the world because the dogs in there. So it's it's kind of uh, nice to see what that's like. Yeah, like the peak Twitter for you. <laughs> Just how I base everything, of course. <laughs> Obviously, <is> yeah. <laughs> everyone else is asleep. Yeah. It's, uh-huh. You can you can actually get quite a lot done in the day though because there's like not really anybody else around all day. It's just then you have to wake up in the morning with a mountain full in your inbox. Yeah, because people are you're getting all your emails while you're asleep. 
Right. Um, the glory of remote work. Yeah, it's the future. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk about managing legacy websites. And the reason I wanted to talk about this, I know y'all do a bunch of retainers with Human Made where you manage site for, sites for a long time. Do you know off the top of your head kind of your record length of uh, record managing websites? Record length that we still have? Sure. Uh, ooh, I don't know. Not not super long, to be honest. Maybe like mm, three years or something like that. Yeah, y'all probably grew out of some of your earliest ones because they were... Yeah, exactly. That that happens a fair bit. And I would say the longest ones we have at the moment are, are the smaller ones still. But um, uh, I... I kind of feel like, I mean, may, maybe you always feel like this, but I feel like the more recent clients that we've had, you know, past couple of years, I don't, I, I, I feel like they're large enough that they'll be good ones to stick around. Whereas when you're growing and, you know, often just your older clients do feel like, you know, they drag you down a bit because maybe you're not doing that type of work anymore. Um, yeah. But uh, for, for like, you know, the clients that we get now the you know big win kind of clients or whatever then i'm sure i don't mean i mean i guess that's been a couple of years and i might be saying the same thing about them but uh, <laughs> I, I feel pretty good about that yeah and for me i post status is probably the longest i've but uh, definitely the longest i've actively been involved in a single website um i've worked with companies where we had retainers where we were maintaining the sites for someone f- for a long haul and I've gone in on really old sites to refurbish them in sorts mm. but PostSatus is really the only one where I have like a consistent <laughs> responsibility to maintain it and deal with my old decisions mm. um, yeah that's the main problem yeah and dealing I with guess your that's younger what... self your more inexperienced self for coding <laughs> right and I think that's a good place to start is to say, like, when we're creating features and making decisions, how do we um, think in terms of the future to try to make, like, a smart technology decision? Um, mm. I guess we can start with, take an example even. So, like, say we have a piece of functionality that's desired. How do we choose between using a plugin, using which plugin, or rolling our own on something? Mm. Um, what plays into that in terms of how we think of the future? Yeah, yeah, I think that is, is a good question because if if you're building something for the long term, I'm thinking we have we have a client who um, probably expect to have their website for probably up to ten years or something. Um, so everything kind of needs to have processes for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you bring up something very interesting there, which is the plugin versus custom functionality. And um, to jump straight into it, I think uh, you know the the update train of core is one thing, but the update train of plugins is actually a lot more difficult to deal with, especially if yeah, you don't want your site to change. Then um, plugins change over time. People release new versions with new features. They also fix previous bugs as part of the same track so you kind of have to keep moving with the changing functionality of plugins typically if you want to keep up to date with security and things like that um and 
you can kind of get away with this on WordPress core because it's got such good compatibility and doesn't really have much feature churn and things like that. But some plugins certainly do have a lot. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing that we deal with from a um, retainer point of view is we, we, on one hand, want to keep everything up to date. But then on the other hand, it's a huge amount of, of one testing, but then also um, going back to the client and saying uh, your website is going to change in this, you know, maybe small way or the way that you're using this feature is going to change. Uh, and maybe they don't want it to change, but but we don't necessarily want to run out of date plugins. So that's that's like a very difficult problem. Does that entice you to use smaller plugins in case you feel like you have to fork them? Um, yeah, there, there's that side to it. it like it, it does depend on, I guess, specific functionality. If you take something, you know, the classic example, Yoast SEO, and it's something that you're probably going to want to move with over the times. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're, uh, you know, dealing with something a more kind of evergreen type feature, you know, maybe something to do with um, uh, workflows or something like that, publishing flows, that's something that you're unlikely just going to want to have changed underneath you uh, as time goes on. Um, and there's, you know, more documentation, institutional knowledge and things that build up of how the system works. Um, so in some cases, then we have forked stuff um, to, you know, fix the security issue or something like that if, if we don't want to bump a major version because uh, there's also obviously the testing overhead that needs to go with all of that new functionality and maybe there's a database migration as part of one of these upgrades and, you know, whatever. Um, so it, it definitely, I, I, I you know, it's not like that's our only concern when we're building a site. It's like, well, how are we going to upgrade in the future? It it obviously is more of like a you realize the the bad decision when it actually comes around, you know, a year later when you're having to deal with it, whatever. But over time, you kind of get used to having to do that. And I guess it's another kind of slight reluctance um, with going a little too plug-in heavy. Yeah, I think that's... A lot of times I try to look at the motivations of the plugin author if I'm thinking in terms of what I'm doing with the plugin. Um, And what I mean by that is, to me, it's a big difference between if it's a solo person that was just scratching scratching an itch versus if it's maybe a big company that um, the plugin, it's nice that there's a big company behind the plugin, but also it's probably not their core focus. versus like if it's somebody that's building their entire career off the plugin. So it's maybe a commercial plugin that they're monetizing, but it's like their pride and joy and their baby. Mm-hmm. Um, like all those things tend to affect my mindset when I'm choosing what to use for a certain piece of functionality. Um, and I actually just thought about this yesterday because you know there's a little bit of a story going around right now how shopify discontinued their uh official wordpress plugin um which it's one of those things like they're a big entity and you would think like if i'm using the official shopify plugin that's great Mm. because it's good gonna be helpful for the long term but at the same time like their motivations for why they may or may not have a plugin for wordpress could be very different from someone else. Mm. Um, 
because if that was a third party, like just some, say it was a, a developer that liked Shopify and, you know, wanted to be able to create something like that, they might maintain it for a much longer term, whereas Shopify could become disinterested if it didn't get enough uptick or improve mm. Shopify's WordPress, um, <laughs> you know, shared market share, like where mm-hmm. someone's using both WordPress and Shopify, all right. sorts of things that could affect yeah, Shopify yeah. Doing, using that plugin or not. Depends what those... Um, uh, objectives are, I suppose. Um, it's uh, on our engineering handbook internally. We have a um, a page published uh, that Ryan actually wrote, which is uh, called Complete Software. And the basic idea is for us on most open source projects that we start is that they're a, a single idea, I suppose, that we create a plugin for or a project. And then they're essentially just, they're done after that. Like that is that project. There is no version two, which adds new functionality. There's only kind of bug fixes, security patches that will ever happen to that. And if you see, you know, if if you're making a plugin for, uh, I know, whatever, like you're making a plugin that allows you to put a Twitter in your, uh, a tweet in your footer, say, like if Mm -hmm. that is, if, if that is the whole plugin right there, you code that and then you say, okay, this is done software. I'll still support it, but it's not going to morph into something else. And I feel like a lot of the time people attempted over time to morph their plugins and projects into, you know, other things, I suppose, add more things, re-architect things. I would say broadly, it's better to start a new project if you're going to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, develop the new idea under a new project name or something um, that is separate to the uh, previous project. Otherwise, you do kind of get into this problem of you're having to bring your users along with you as you uh, slightly grow and change your software over time. And that is, uh, like I was saying a bit ago, is just a difficult thing then to uh, maintain as like a packager of all of this software you know distributing it to a client for instance do you think that's typically done from a commercial perspective like say somebody you said twitter uh tweet but let's say somebody creates like a mailchimp plugin or something um and then it's pretty simple pretty straightforward and then they get a hundred thousand active installs and they see an avenue for uh creating a business out of the plugin Mm, mm. and utilizing the 100,000 right. active totally. installs is inherent to the potential success. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it goes down to, there's, there's a little bit of that, which is uh, you want to capitalize on your previous versions or, or incarnation of the software or whatever. I think a lot of it is also down to naming. Like if you name your plugin, um, uh, you know, Shopify for WordPress or whatever to do an integration, as Shopify comes out with new features, you're presumably then going to want to incorporate these into your plugin because your plugin supposedly is the Shopify for WordPress plugin. It's not yeah. the um, you know specific plugin which which can do something with Shopify. Um, and that you know if if you're Mailchimp and you're developing you know the official WordPress plugin, you're going to have that kind of problem as well when you make the official Mailchimp for WordPress plugin. Um, so I, I think that. It depends if your project is defined by, you know, what it does or a much broader just kind of a use case is going to depend really um, how much you're going to feel pulled 
to like uh, change the plugin over time. Yeah, but another example I think that maybe is less like that. If you just create a standalone, say, editorial calendar for WordPress, like you could theoretically imagine creating all these components of that that support uh, an editorial workflow that aren't an editorial calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, maybe that's what you mean in terms of creating new projects for those things because some of your clients may, or some of your users of your plugin probably were just looking for an editorial calendar, not all these other right. things. totally. There's, uh, there's, a, you... there's a kind of, I feel like people want to keep broadening the scope of the software to get more people, I suppose, you know, not, yeah, not the goal is the goal is more users, whether it's commercial. Yeah. Yeah. And that may not be sinister. Like, it's just like people like to have people use their software. So they keep adding, you know, you merge a pull request for a feature and then somebody else says like, oh, I thought it'd be cool if we could do this. So I open a pull request for another feature and you merge that one in. Um, and we're quite kind of um, uh, stubborn with that to be like, the you know, make an add-on plugin or something like that that can work with this plugin, but it's not going to change what this plugin kind of set out to do, I suppose. Would you be more likely to, if you have two relatively similar pieces, plugins with functionality, and let's say the code is equivalent um, in quality, would you be more likely to trust a plugin that's from another agency that's similar to yours and therefore you would think has similar motivations? Versus like it was from, you know, I don't know, some other enterprise, an individual. Yeah, so, um, it's probably not like my main criteria. Like the, the bigger thing would be if it's made by a reputable person, that's probably going to be enough for me. Like secondary is going to be like, what are their motives for this plugin and how is that going to look over time? Um, yeah. Realistically, I, I don't know if you can be quite that selective, um, but all else being equal, then sure. Um I'm not sure, you know, this is somewhat of a philosophical thing about how you think that code should be written. Uh, so it's it's not necessarily just like, just because there are other agencies that are doing similar work to us, they may have different principles. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, again, some other agencies have plugins that are more product-based, so I expect those kind of, I mean, Stream is a good example of this, I suppose. Um, that really threw a bit of a spanner into the works for us when we were using stream one and that worked uh, well and then stream two came out and arguably stream two is kind of quite a separate project if you like you know for people that don't know stream stream was a logging plugin yeah it's it's kind of like an audit log for your wordpress activity and stream two essentially moved all of the logs to a hosted setup so it was very different yeah so that like that isn't necessarily a problem because you'd be like, okay, well, I'll stay on stream one. But the problem is uh, nobody was supporting stream one then and stream two (laughs) just didn't work from a compliance point of view, even for our clients. Um, And then stream three went back, right? (laughs) And then stream three went back. But then we're in this awkward situation, right? Where we're on stream one and it's working. And then we know there's stream three that conceptually would work. Um, But again, like upgrading from stream one to stream three, I'm presuming still has a bunch of different stuff in it. Uh, mm-hmm. So again, especially with something like audit logging, then like I, I would say the clients that find this most valuable are not ones that appreciate much change just happening in their CMS. Yeah, uh, they figure so, out what they want to log and they start logging it and they want to log it. Right, exactly. And if, if you, very... like, you were to ever change how stuff is logged over time, you now have like a compatibility issue potentially or whatever with how they expect the data to be. Um, so I guess 
that that was yeah. um, I think just an example of of like uh, arguably Stream Two is a separate product, but I kind of don't think so because Stream Three then came came back again, um, and and that is just like it's a difficult thing from both sides. It's a tricky thing for people that want to use Stream One and ideally um, want the community to carry on supporting that um, or in in whatever capacity. Um, but then the developers of Stream is it's a business for Stream, and they want to evolve and become a better product. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's you know can just be some friction there, I suppose. Okay, so now we've made these decisions, and we've we're now living with the consequences, right? So it's a, a year or two years on, and we've got some degree of technical debt based on the technologies that we've adopted. Um, that technical debt at, at this point, um, this is where like I am with status. it includes the plug-in choices that you made and whoever wrote those and whatever paths they've gone down, as well as the debt of your own code, which is a whole different story, but I think more one that's a little easier to, to for people to just grasp without us talking about it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so then like, now what, you know, like say for me, I, if I have a feature project or like something that it's causing me to dig down into my code base and the, the functionality of my website in a non-superficial way. Um, what's y'all's process in terms of uh, digging into that whole yeah. thing? Like what are you going to do to kick that off? I'd say... Um... Uh, I, I I don't know if there's a simple answer. I would say like we're definitely. I think it's like pertinent to be reluctant not to go in and be like, oh, all this needs updating. You know, let's say we're using Grunt. <laughs> Rewrite. Old, yeah, yeah. Like let's say you're even using Grunt on an old project, right? And then you switch to Gulp, maybe you know a year later, uh-huh. and uh, you like Gulp now, and you know you think that it's... But your old project's still on Grunt. <laughs> right. Um, I I think that. That kind of like itchy developer feeling that I certainly experience um, is something that you do need to control it a little bit, or at least for me. Anyway, <laughs> I just speak from my own experience rather than trying to uh, preach to anybody else. Um, it, it usually what happens for me is I'm like, oh, this needs to be updated, and then you start going down a rabbit hole, and then you realize it's not that good, and you know you've seen the kind of like code refactoring gifts and things like that, you know, I think everybody knows the dangers of diving in too much into code refactoring and it just being a total fool's errand and maybe you end up just throwing away the whole refactor and just, you know, fixing the line of code that you actually needed to fix in the first place. And potentially wasting a lot of time and money and huge amount of time. Yeah, yeah. And and refactoring code that doesn't actually know that, that you don't manage to come up the other side and it's all good is a really frustrating thing. Um, so though it may feel good when you start refactoring like that is has pretty quick drop off once you realize you're probably not going to get out your your example is pretty interesting to me because i once had pretty much exactly that with uh a grunt configuration where someone had like really really embraced a particular grunt setup Mm -hmm. and then you know once i dug in with a it was a new retainer so once i dug in a year or two after that was done like all the dependencies that were in there were out of date and like some of the stuff had been deprecated. So like, and that affected like all these paths that are written to for like asset management, (laughs) you know, all these things. It's like, 
they had kind of over embraced the features of Grunt mm-hmm. and Grunt. Grunt was not super responsible in the update in the sense of okay, yeah. like now I was kind of forced to either refactor or downgrade everything on my local setup, which affected mm-hmm. other sites, mm-hmm. to like just be able to freaking compile right. this project uh, <laughs> using Grunt. I mean, no, no modules, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar thing when you go into a new project uh, or, or an old project but new, um, you know, want to make some changes. Upgrading NPM modules is another thing that is a very tempting thing to do. And again, I would say take more of a um, of a scalpel approach to... Uh, Don't to do it unless you got some time. To. Yeah, unless there's really a benefit. You know, there, there is a difference between, I suppose, you know, I want to change something or I want to change this whole piece of functionality. I kind of get it doing it then because you're going to make your... You know, you've got a lot of work to do anyway, so why not make that work a little bit smoother by having what you feel now to be a clean, productive development environment? Um, yeah. So, so there, there is at some point, there's you know a tipping point where it becomes worth it. Um, it's just if you like me can learn to like sense that feeling uh, of like just wanting to change stuff because you like to be up to date or you like to have it the new way, but you're struggling to actually justify what is you know what is the project getting from this change then um keep keep that under control uh that would be um, so for for me getting into that situation i kind of know where the nasty stuff is in my code base because i did it you know uh but for y- y'all you may have you may be a new client but it also may be just that whoever was managing that mm-hmm. client changed over so it's a new person um, so do y'all pretty much have a standard procedure that when you're diving into a project in a non-superficial manner that you do an audit of sorts, uh, even though it's already been your client or, um, yeah, how to, yeah, yeah. That's how do you, like, how do you, how do you document the situation? Right, because right. Yeah. You this also have much to explain, as an like, kind of thing. Yeah. You also have to explain sometimes to the client, like, Hey, we know you spent a lot of money on this back mm-hmm. when but now like it's going to cost a lot of money or time or hours it's all the same thing um to do xyz that may not have like a ton of it's not like you're going to see something new and shiny it's just that your old right. slightly dusty thing is going to keep working <laughs> yeah so i'd say broadly we probably uh keep that a little bit from the client like we're probably happy to take a little bit of a hit on like okay you know, this person hasn't worked on it before. It's just going to take them one or two days to get set up. And whether that ends up being billed for, I I don't really know. I don't think we'd be too concerned about that. Um, mm-hmm. But the it does bring up a good point, which is like uh, essentially onboarding documentation for other developers is an important thing and is something that we're trying to um, kind of get better at. Um, there's things you can do. Yes, you can have like, a introductory doc that explains from a high level technical stuff. You could even have um, some screencasts or you know internal uh, code level docs is obviously better than nothing. Um, but it's always, I think that's always going to be a difficult process, right? You, the new developer coming onto a project has got to cram that information into their brain somehow. And that is just frankly not always an easy thing to do. Uh, so there's, I, I think there's just, inherently a level of I just need to um, you know nestle down and, and um, try and work out how this thing is is set up 
to form your own mental model. Because the thing is, another developer writing high-level documentation, you usually have to describe things in abstract ways, and it doesn't necessarily map on to somebody else and click for them. Uh, and pe- people need to form their own models of how, how the project is. Um, so there's always going to be a little bit of pain there, I'm sure. Uh, but there's also the thing of like... Um, previous developer could have had a totally different style of writing code or something like mm. that. And that's the thing that can be difficult. I'd say um, we try and be as consistent as we can without kind of um, um, restricting any creativity. Uh, but but we do try and like, you know, have, have everybody, at least everybody's writing the same um, style of code in terms of like, you know, I don't know, using namespaces or WordPress coding standards or the same file structure layout, that kind of thing. Um, but that doesn't, that that's a more superficial level that's going to allow you to just easily navigate around code in any project. But that doesn't necessarily uh, help when maybe you have one project that's very heavy object-oriented, one that is quite mm-hmm. procedural. Uh, procedural. Uh, so when somebody comes into that heavy object-oriented uh, stuff, then, you know, Maybe they're not used to that as much. They need to ramp up on it. And all of that is difficult. And that's really, I guess, I don't have any silver bullet for that. That's kind of web, you know, that's that's programming to a certain degree. You need to be able to understand the abstraction that's been laid down, and then you've got to try and continue that pattern. And I would say always try and continue the pattern of the code base versus going against it. Um, otherwise, you're going to fall into what we were previously talking about, which is, oh, this is all badly written. I need to write this how I write code. Uh, and then maybe maybe you do that 30% of the code base. And then maybe the, you know that project is done. And then it goes on to the next developer. And now the code base is in like 30% one style, 70% <laughs> another. Uh, so it's it's always if you're gonna do if you're gonna change anything, change it for the whole project. And if you realize you're gonna have to change it for the whole project, then you're probably not going to want to anymore. So if it does it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more uh, when we get back from the break about the update side of things. Um, There's another interesting story that's been going on recently that I think we can apply to it. But first, I want to thank one of our partners, and it's a new partner to PostStatus. We have two new partners this year, and uh, one of them is SearchWP. So speaking of uh, choosing a plugin for particular functionality, uh, Jonathan Christopher created SearchWP because he has a small agency and he was disappointed with WordPress search options and, of course, like most people, the native WordPress search. Uh, so he created SearchWP for himself and his own agency to use. And uh, it is now, I would say, probably uh, the most popular um, commercial solution to search in terms of like the non-super complex side of things for WordPress search. Like, so if you're not going to run like your own elastic search instance and mm-hmm. <laughs> have like an expensive server just for search, uh, if you want to keep search in MySQL, but you want to make it significantly better, then that's what search WP does. So you can go to searchwp.com and see all the features, but it does things like include e-commerce product details and you can add custom fields you can create your own little search engines with uh, weights on different things add taxonomy terms you can um, put extra weight on like the post title versus the content you can do all sorts of things it's really a clever plugin Um, he's been really determined to um, do this in a smart way because obviously there's a lot of bad things that can happen with search. MySQL is not necessarily mm. the most awesome way to handle it. Um, 
So he's tried really hard to be cognizant of performance and like how it manages itself on all sorts of different hosting environments. It's a really fascinating project. Um, and it's really, nice. really solid, uh, a solid plugin. And um, yeah, so check out Search WP. And we're really happy to have them as a new post status partner. So go to searchwp.com and buy it. Um, okay, so WooCommerce 3.0 just came out, and this it, is your this is your area now. Just yeah, yeah, because <laughs> y'all aren't doing a lot of e-commerce, but we can. You'll have plenty, to, I'm sure, to say because one of the, <laughs> it's kind of guy. His, <laughs> Historically, they um, have had major ch- major uh, versions in similar in the WordPress way. So a major version could have backward compatibility breaking features. The difference has been WordPress, like you mentioned, is really, really careful with backward compatibility and plugins tend not to be as careful. Um, they may say like, okay, well, this is going to break after X versions, like one version or three versions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, WooCommerce has like tried to accommodate like small breaking features and just tell people about them and get the word out and deal with the support burden of like one or two things in a major release that uh, might need addressing with the custom code. Um, this was getting hairier and hairier as the plugin evolved, as its usage base got bigger. And with two point from two point six to two point seven, they actually stopped and decided instead to switch to semantic versioning. And so instead of two point seven, it was going to be three point And they were switching to a proper uh, major release versus minor release versus patch release system with uh, semantic versioning. First, so my first question is: Do you have experience with? working with semantic versioning either in y'all's own projects or stuff you use? Um, I guess a a couple of things, nothing that major. It's more, we use it for some internal stuff where it's it's very important to just indicate Mm -hmm. whether it's going to break anything. So I'm just thinking even things like configuration files or something, then we use semantic versioning for. Um, but y'all don't use it for plugins you release like backup WordPress or something. Yeah, no, not not for something like that. We, um, I mean, you know, we use the arbitrary. Does this feel like a big release? Which is obviously what uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of people do. Um, a lot of open source stuff that we have is, uh, like I say, is kind of like doesn't really have a version two or version three. Backup WordPress is a you know, your normal product plugin, so it does. Um, but mm-hmm. most things are just, you know, they're just, if, if they were on semantic versioning, it would always be 1.0.x. Uh, and that, would, that last number would just keep incrementing because we're not really doing major changes. Yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things about WooCommerce and a bunch of other plugins too, it's not just WooCommerce, is uh, they've created an ecosystem around themselves so you've got WordPress as a framework and as an ecosystem itself that with people that have built things on top of it, plugins, obviously, themes. But then you have a plugin that has its own ecosystem. Um, and then what's funny is with WooCommerce, for example, say I use WooCommerce subscriptions. They were, they're, people know who that, what that is probably. Um, 
I hope so. They sponsored the last episode. <laughs> so it's a great plugin in its own, and it adds to WooCommerce. And then even WooCommerce subscriptions has like sub modules to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there's these layers of functionality. Mm-hmm. And what has been tr- hard for WooCommerce is managing how do we do updates and progress the plugin and yet try to differentiate so that people aren't constantly dealing with upgrade mm-hmm. path type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So they decided to switch to semantic versioning. So the one that just came out a couple of weeks ago is uh, WooCommerce 3.0, and it's definitely has breaking changes. That's like the whole point of the major version. Right. The great, the good side of that is 3.1 or whatever will not have breaking changes. If I'm thinking of semantic versioning in the right, <laughs> the right decimal place. Um... Yes, but um, you you can still technically have, but yeah, like you're you're talking much more minor stuff, I guess. Yeah, um, you add functionality in a backwards compatible manner according yeah. to the actual simber dot org uh, definition, and then a patch is where you're making fully backward compatible bug fixes only. Uh, yes, yeah, so minor... like WordPress is basically just has patch and minor version. Yes, WordPress doesn't do like people. <laughs> tech blogs are like WordPress three WordPress four point right. and they don't mean anything different than four point one. WooCommerce three is significantly different than three point one, which will come as the next minor version. Yeah, um, so I think I think if you're planning to break compatibility, Semver is great for that because it indicates it right in the name and the. The problem with, like, there are some instances in WordPress where it has broken small amounts of backwards compatibility, but it's really difficult to track, you know, where that was introduced or when to expect that and, you know, what version you can upgrade to if you don't, if you can't deal with that change. Whereas Semver, you know, wears it on his sleeve, so it's more obvious. So um, I think it's a good thing for sure. And it's, and it's been okay in WordPress itself. One, because there's a huge benefit in trying to drag people along with updates as much as possible. And also the breaking changes are so small and rare and like for a tiny percentage of the user base with an upgrade path and all these things like they, the core team's pretty good. I think Mm -hmm. probably way better than most pieces of software in terms of making it as seamless as possible for people to get around those breaking changes. Um, what WooCommerce yeah, so, so the the only issue I'd take with that is that other software is good at not breaking compatibility. If like you're just you're if if you're moving to a newer version of Windows or Ubuntu, you're by definition changing that major version, so should expect breaks. But if you look at uh, like patches or whatever to Ubuntu from three years ago are like still very good at maintaining compatibility, you know. Sure, but that's different with that. But look at like Laravel or React or, you know, Mm -hmm. some of those things, like things that are more framework-based like WordPress, they are having major versions often. And so it's great that the feature development is fast, but also like, people that are maintaining a code base in Laravel could be having multiple, many times per year, making code changes to their project right. just to keep up so that their site doesn't break under the new version. 
Yeah, but uh, that's this. I mean, this is what I'm getting to with the WooCommerce thing is because I've I've understand there's been a little bit of controversy around this, um, yeah. and but it's it's only an issue if you choose to upgrade. So it's it's not uh, with Semva, typically anyway. If if you're if you're gonna you know break backwards compatibility or whatever, you aren't necessarily saying therefore every should upgrade to WooCommerce three. Um, yes, it's distinctly not a security release, for example. So right. I'll I use presume me as they would an still example. commit security releases to That's the two branch as well. Correct. So I have not updated WooCommerce yet because I use uh, subscriptions, memberships, and a couple of like mm. pretty large extensions that, um, to be frank, are still working to make sure that they are handling all the edge cases of 3.0 plus their versions that mm, yeah. bring compatibility with it. So like I have a whole suite of plugins that I'm like intentionally leaving out of date. Um, and it's really the first time I've dealt with something like that because historically it, it just kind of upgraded and there wasn't, you just, the, your best case scenario really was just to upgrade everything and fix what pops mm-hmm. up. And yeah. whereas now like it's much more determined, like, well, we broke X and therefore, right. All these other plugins have to fit, deal with that as well. So, like the whole ecosystem has to kind of lift itself up, and it's created for me like a, diff- a ch- different challenge in upgrading a legacy site. So, I'm obviously very glad that it's not a security release. If it was, I'd be in trouble. Yeah. And that's why you don't update a major version with uh, Simver with a security vulnerability or like with a disclosed right. one. Um, yeah, but it introduces is, a whole new paradigm in totally. the sense of maintaining. Yeah, stuff. yeah. And I would say we've been fairly spoiled in the WordPress ecosystem for that with Core and, and other very big plugins. Um, there are, you know, uh, React is a good one, uh, not even React Core itself, but um, I, I'm thinking I was building something on React Native and on 0.40 of React Native, they just changed something that literally broke every single React Native module. <laughs> uh, and it was like every every module author had to update their code to do something in a slightly different way. And you uh, find out who's paying attention to their submodules. <laughs> right. And it, but it just, it forks the whole ecosystem right down the middle. Um, and that is a really costly thing to do that I think you can only do once or twice before uh, people are going to get a little too burned by something like that. The, yeah, um, there's regret. There, there, you, you have uh, framework choosing regret uh, every time something like that happens because you have to deal with it. I think yeah. that's why WordPress's market share is so big because for the most part, like it all kind of like chugs along together and you get certainly plenty of bad things that people will then say about it, like, oh, look at that code because it's never been fully refactored and it's mm-hmm. still... PHP 5.2 compatible and all these things, but like at the same time, there's never been like these massive right. split down the middle decisions. I like, the, I like the way you framed that. Yeah, and I, I think you know, WooCommerce. Um, it, it's, I, I feel like I don't know if there is a a uh, if it, if it's a coincidence at all that WooCommerce is doing that and. Um, Matt seems to be a little more open to WordPress core, um, breaking backwards compatibility for some things in order to be able to innovate. Um, I guess there's a natural kind of um, standoff between, you know, 
as, as we know, I want to change the product in a big way to remain competitive versus uh, I want to maintain stability for all the existing users. Um, and that, that is a difficult trade-off. Um, as I was saying at the beginning of the whole conversation, I think maybe there are different ways to do it with creating different projects potentially as well. If everybody feels like they've got to carry on with you, as you decide to break compatibility to get a different part of the market or whatever, then um, I feel like you're going to be just gaining people on the right and losing them on the left. So I'm not sure if that mm -hmm. is really a strategy for succeeding. In terms of WooCommerce, it, it is certainly partly because they couldn't see a path forward without um, making significant changes. For instance... Uh, as people, anyone that works with WooCommerce probably knows, like things like orders are in the post table still. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and that from an architectural else is in post meta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, in an architectural point of view, that's horrible. Um, just think of a uh, someone that has had a million orders or whatever. Now they've got a million orders in the post table that's in the same lookup that you're doing product lookups and showing your archives and you're, you yeah, know. And like, it's the same thing for meta, but it's times by like 20 because you have so many <laughs> meta entries. Exactly. So it becomes a very unwieldy situation where your database architecture um, not only may not be perfect for e-commerce in the first part, even if your table structure was, now your table structure with orders and everything else is also like quite, uh, convenient in terms mm -hmm. of being able to use random WordPress functionality on the uh, order and product data, but it's inconvenient in sense of like big stores getting on WooCommerce. It just creates enormous challenges that have mm -hmm. come to light as WooCommerce's market share has increased. So for them, they have these big milestones where semantic versioning and fully and truly just being free to say, boom, gone. Like, we don't support that stuff anymore. Um, that was a big deal and part of what had to make they had to do for this. And um, I think that's a good thing. I wrote an editorial on Post Status that was about how I think for plugins, semantic, big plugins with their own ecosystems, semantic versioning makes a whole lot of sense because those are important decisions that you have to make so that one, you don't hate your code base too, so it can move forward mm -hmm. and yeah. um, so that it can progress and become a better plugin. You're not always stuck in this rut of like your decisions from five years ago and what all the reasoning behind what those were. For someone maintaining a legacy website like me, now you have to deal with those decisions. If you have custom code or if you have say an extension that someone's not supporting anymore, um, you have to fix your website um, yeah. and like get around all those things. So you have to think of that when you're choosing the platform in the first place. Um, and, and it's the, a tough I, decision. It's it, a lot of work. It, it, it is difficult because there is, I guess, just misaligned priorities because if you're, if you're WooCommerce and I presume WooCommerce wants to get into the business of large profitable shops, which isn't it's, you know, um, they're on the long tail right now. Yeah, exactly. So if you've got a small little website and let's, I don't know, you paid a thousand bucks to make, you know, somebody made it a couple of years ago. Uh, and now you're in this situation where WooCommerce has kind of decided that the foundation is not good for what it wants to go after, which isn't you. Uh, so you're kind of just like, 
left to deal with that. You probably have to pay a certain amount to get that done. Um, but then if you're WooCommerce, like you release a new major version, like they realistically aren't going to want to put a big amount of effort into supporting version two, especially as time goes on. Um, and neither necessarily should they, you know, there's no obligation for them just to support free software indefinitely. Um, so it's, it's like a push and pull, I think, between the people using it and the developers. And everybody, I guess, is, has to move forward at some pace, right? That website mm -hmm. cannot be sitting there for 50 years and stay secure and uh, not have to, you know, go through some massive uh, architectural changes that are going to break something about its initial functionality. Uh, so everybody's going to have to be walking forward at some pace. Yeah, and I think there's uh, what, what is it, the Venn diagram of you know concentric circles mm -hmm. or overlapping circles. Like the hope for WooCommerce themselves, I think, or anyone in this situation, we're using WooCommerce as our guinea pig. Um, yeah. You would hope, hope that your your long term customer or your long tail customers, like smaller shops, say someone doing an order a day or whatever, and they're not going to run into as much scale issue. Um, they don't have a lot of custom code that's not going to be okay once mm. the various extensions they're using are up to date with and WooCommerce is up to date. It'll be fine. It'll just work because the tools they're using in general are all staying up to date and it's their custom code that they would... Like, I have to update custom code. On the other side, you have... Uh, big stores that have budgets for managing updates and all the things they have staff, they have retainers with human made and, you know, like these types of things. It's the people in the middle that are both small and need to do the custom work. Mm. Uh, so yeah. like, like me, for instance, um, <laughs> you're it's feeling pretty, particularly burned by this one. <laughs> it's not, no, I'm not, I don't feel burned cause I think it's the right decision, but yeah. for a store like mine, like right. it's my full time living, but, Imagine if I didn't know the code myself and now like I was getting quotes from like contractors to help me fix my site so that I could upgrade to the latest version and I'm getting quotes back that are like thousands of dollars that I yeah, wasn't no. planning on spending. Then that's where that's your most challenging market where you're going to deal with the most pushback and the most struggle of mm -hmm. dealing with a self-hosted website, self-hosted e-commerce solution. And frankly, I think that's why there's so much appeal for hosted things where you don't have to deal with mm -hmm. updates and all the stuff that goes along with that. What, how, how, how has the reaction been, do you think, to WooCommerce? Uh, there's been a ton of support. Like mm -hmm. some hosts, like, um, I mean, my Pagely auto-updates plugins by default. So they actually sent out an email to people that have WooCommerce that said, hey, we're pausing auto-updates on these sites for mm. a couple of weeks while WooCommerce irons it out. Right, or um, the ecosystem as well, I suppose. Yes, and I think that might be what was underestimated on the WooCommerce side. Even though there was a long beta and RC period, it wasn't enough time for the ecosystem to like fully lift itself up. Mm. Uh, along with so like some and if you just upgrade like I would probably be fine I just don't want to deal with it right now <laughs> um, because there could be edge cases so if I was in one of these edge cases where like all of my extensions didn't align 
with the changes to WooCommerce itself. And this version specifically had CRUD classes that were introduced, and therefore, like some of the stuff that was not CRUD based mm-hmm. um, needed to be updated. And that's why, like, I could have custom code in my website that is breaking because it's not following the new CRUD format um, with those default functions. And uh, so like there's potentially a lot of work. Um, And I think there's probably been pushback. I would bet Automatic's support burden is quite high right now Mm. because people just clicked update or they are at a host that just updated it at all and, you know, it caused problems. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the WordPress plugin updating, you know, keep all your stuff up to date doesn't work with this approach so well. Everybody's been trained to always update everything. Um, right. <laughs> and now it's, doing It's that, always like, yeah. back, up your, back up your site, but for the most part, you should just be able to press the button. Um, that's a, it's not the approach that you take for something like this. Right, which and I is think it's, 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 it's weird. It a, feels weird for yeah. me. It feels weird. Right. Yeah. No, you're not not used to it uh, in in the WordPress world, I suppose. Um, I, I feel like it's you know going with the WordPress approach or you know the the very small incremental try and drag everybody along at the same time. Um, I don't know if if there's that much difference between. Because WooCommerce could have probably done this over the portion of eight eight releases, say, every time, maybe breaking a little bit of things, but but enough just to kind of only break one plugin at a time or whatever. Uh, this is clearly just like a uh, everything in once kind of uh, thing. Um, and, you know, w- would you prefer to do it a bunch of times, updating WooCommerce each minor version of the releases, or no, do you just want I've it all in one go? I prefer this version because uh, I've been using WooCommerce since it came out and they've introduced breaking changes before. It was just harder to know when they were hap- when mm-hmm. they would happen. Right. Unless you were closely following the development blog and whatever. But the more likely scenario is that you just press update and then you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> like something in there didn't work. What was it <laughs> and why? <laughs> Especially if you're not trained about like, proper update procedure and everything you need to deal with. Or if you just get complacent and you think like, oh, it's been okay for a while and I press update. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is a lot more structured and I do think it's the better way, but it's just a sign that when you get into complex plugins, complex functionality on a website and you get to the point where you're maintaining a website over years, you deal with a lot of different stuff. And I think we're a little different than the average listener probably because I'm managing a website for five years now and you have clients that are significant uh, development retainers. Um, A lot of people do one-off stuff. So like they're making the decision for the client, but then the Mm. client deals with the consequences of the decision. Yeah, that's very true. And and that's why I thought this would be interesting because I think especially when you're popping in as the new consultant, say you're refactoring a website and this is where I kind of want to finish our conversation is like, it's easy to say, okay, let's bam, redevelop all this, refactor all this, do it our way, and here we go. So my last question is, one, uh, well, one is a word of warning. Like if you're just coming in green uh, new green to the project, like be careful with choosing that versus like following, understanding what the legacy components of the website and maybe some of the merit of keeping some of those things. 
And my question, though, is like, how do we decide, okay, it's time for a big change? Um, and, and, you know, yeah. let's, let's, let's put the, put the uh, effort in to do this thing. Yeah, so I think for us, it doesn't really come from a, I guess, just like a old in, in amount of years necessarily. I, most of our kind of like we recommend a heavy refactor really comes down to just like some very bad decisions were made at the beginning. And it's not really a time-based thing. It's just um, if we have a site that has been developed by people that have no idea, you know, how to build a WordPress site, um, then it's probably just going to be quicker um, to uh, do like a, a major rewrite or whatever. Um, if we have a site, I'm thinking, you know, we're not that we really get it, but let's say it's on version 2.5 of WordPress or something with some plugins. Um, I guess in that scenario, there's, I can't imagine a really complex site that, that was that old, I suppose. So I'm, I'm not really sure exactly how that would go down. Um, most of the time it's really quality based, which is, which is prompting, I guess, us to do that. Um, we're, we are a little, I'd say we're more hardlined than most people would need to be because, uh, usually for the projects that we're taking on, we're taking on quite a lot of responsibility for them. Uh, so we kind of want to be extra sure, I suppose. Uh, so certainly any project that we take on has a quite, you know, in-depth code audit already by us to make sure there's nothing kind of hiding out. Um, and as part of that, we usually produce a list of uh, things that we would kind of uh, want done if we were to take on the project. Uh, but it's usually, I don't know, it's not that unusual to get a project that has, you know, no escaping or, or sanitizing or anything. And that's really just a case of like, we just need to go through and, and implement all of that. You know, I would never really recommend rewriting a project just because of that. But again, um, I'd, I'd say it's more to do with the programming quality uh, than just pure legacy based off of, you know, old versions, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I, think I, I, I think old code isn't necessarily bad. And my, like, my best testament to this is, so we built a service WP Remote, which you may know. Um, mm. And that... We probably, the last time we did anything significant on that was a good few years ago, really. We've kind of, you know, kept stuff up to date um, since then, just for a security perspective. But old code does not necessarily rust or rot. Like, it can carry on doing what it was always doing. And you'll actually, like, I've certainly found that is one of our most stable projects because nobody does anything with it. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's, it's not just going to stop working over time. Uh, whereas if if we had somebody that was doing, like, let's say we had somebody who was doing, like, a few hours every week on it or something, I'm sure it'd be mm -hmm. breaking much more just because tinkering or changing is just going to have that effect. And if you don't have a lot of energy to put towards that, um, then you're going to break stuff. And... I have like side projects that I'm quite fast and loose with, right? I'll just probably commit stuff and might not get it code reviewed or whatever. It's not a human made project. I'll break stuff all the time doing that. And if I just left stuff alone, then the users of those things would probably be much happier. Um, so I, I, I think there's something to be said in just like, if, if it's working, then, uh, 
if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I suppose. Yeah. And I mostly agree with that. I know I've got stuff that I've worked on and certainly stuff on post status where, you know, it's not ideal, but it's, it's work, it's operating, you know, it's not, it's not like causing major headaches. Um, and some of it's simple. It's not necessarily like big plugin functionality. Sometimes it's just like front end stuff, like the way of particular view works. But mm-hmm. if I went, if I went and tried to edit it and make it different, like it has these cascading effects because I didn't necessarily structure it just like I should have. Right. So that it's not like isolated to this one thing that I was meaning to change. And now like, you know, now I think, uh, I think you've got to be careful of a, I certainly have this, like, let's say you have 20 CSS files, right? And let's mm-hmm. just say they're all using tabs for indexing, but one of them is using spaces. Let's say you know this is on your website, right? I know if you're anything like me, you're not going to like the fact, right? You, this is a really re- reducted example, but um, you're going to feel like the code is not great, right? Because there's something there that I know about that I need to change. But that doesn't actually... That's not impacting the functionality whatsoever or the capability of the website or, or whatever. Uh, so I think there is a bias to like, you know, feel like you need to change something. Maybe there are areas of your website where you're like, oh, yeah, no, I need to change that because it's using jQuery or not wanting to use whatever. Um, but it doesn't actually need to change. It's more just like you want to change it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I have stuff that I know that I have. A lot, some Sometimes it's just semantics. Mm-hmm. Um, like I could have called something left or right or like... Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I can bugging think of one. you, but you're not using semantic class names on one of those pages. <laughs> right. It could say like, it could say, it could be like, I named it Big Blue Box, but then like... Yeah, now it's red. I, I made it more generic. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> not blue anymore. <laughs> like I have dealt, I have stuff like that all over my but like, like it's it's not a problem HTML and CSS. Thing. Sure, right. it's not. It's really not a problem. Um, and but then more common for me is actually based like I created a module like a view, uh, a part of a single view that maybe was specific to something like a profile, and then I applied it to like a whole different right. type of content. So now, like, both the markup and the CSS is all, like, (laughs) talking about profiles, but it's applying to jobs. You know what I mean? Or, like, it's about related content, but but then I'm applying it to, like, something that's not related content. And it's stuff that just drives me crazy. But then I go fix it, and I'm like, oh. I, like, find out a week later I broke, like, three other things. (laughs) (laughs) Because I changed the name of a piece of HTML and the associated CSS like so dumb I did not need to do that all I did was tinker and screw stuff up Um, but then what I then there it does something does come along where it requires bigger change Um, for me like right now I'm I've been working with Daniel Bachuber and I I asked him to work with me because I wanted to make sure someone smarter than me was helping me with the migration component. Right. So like I made a dumb decision of making people's profiles a a custom post type because it felt more post (laughs) type-ish. And really they should have just been users because every person that's going to have a profile joined as a member and they have a user account. And Mm -hmm. 
Like it should have been user meta and it should have been user taxonomies and it should have been user post-to-post relationships. Talk about uh, technical debt. Like I'm yeah. reliant on post-to-post since plugin that doesn't get managed anymore. Um, so like I was dealing with these things and I finally just felt like because I wanted to do certain stuff, like make it easier for people to update their profiles because it's a little funky when people who don't have permissions, you're trying to allow them to edit a post. Um mm-hmm but editing their user profile is a lot simpler. Like, so, but it just required, finally I was just like, screw it. Let's just do this. Let's change this mm-hmm. thing. Right. Um, and replicate all the functionality that was on profiles and then do a migration project. And like, so it's like a little bit of, uh, it's effort to refactor the code base. It's, uh, managing a legacy site. Like finally choosing, saying like, okay, this decision I made in the past is worth fixing. It's worth changing and bringing up to speed with what I want now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like one of the costs that you have with a legacy website. And, um, so I finally decided to pull that bandaid off and, um, and Daniel thankfully is helping me do some of this stuff. And it's been actually more painless than I thought, mostly right. because he's incredibly talented yeah. and like stuff that yeah. would have taken me a very long time. And I would have done in a like roundabout way. He's just like, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that does it like, obviously there are appropriate times, uh, to, to do stuff like that because, uh, you're, you know, slowing yourself down in the longer run by, by building on the wrong foundations. Um, it's, it's trying to work out what things have changed over time that I now do, which are just stylistically different, I suppose versus um, actually going to make a big difference. And uh, I certainly go through a lot of changes of styles that I do things, but that doesn't make them kind of objectively more stable or uh, uh, performant or whatever. So there, you know, I don't need to change all the stuff that I've done before that doesn't match with how I would do it now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine a really big... Uh, change on a legacy site like for instance what if you I mean like WooCommerce now is such a dominant e-commerce plugin or like EDD but what if you were using something that no longer exists or it's like a vastly different ecosystem like say you're using Jigashop which WooCommerce forked Mm. from and you kept using Jigashop for several years and now you're like uh that ecosystem's not what I want it to be so let's migrate this site to WooCommerce like to me that sounds terrifying um, yeah, and, and that's, I, that's a, I guess at least you know, that is a thing that you would have seen for quite a while coming, and it's really like replatforming or something like that. Um, yeah. So it's it's uh, fairly expected, I suppose. And most, I guess it depends if you're just running your own thing, then I get that's annoying. Um, like certainly every large company knows that they have to upgrade technology over time. So that itself is not new. It's just like the rate at which software can move is so much faster than most institutions are really want to be moving. Um, and if you look at something, uh, you know, like in the JavaScript ecosystem, that is way faster uh, than yeah. people want stuff to change. And I think the most important thing to leave people with is especially if you're a consultant or if you're making decisions for your own projects early on being careful in the decision-making process is more important than you think for the clients and for the projects that actually will last. I mean, a lot of stuff just doesn't last 
or the relationship doesn't last. So people never see the consequences of their decisions. Mm -hmm. I know I didn't for like tons of sites I worked on. Um, but for the people that will end up using what you're making for them, or you are sitting with the consequences of those decisions for five years, 10 years, like we haven't even gotten to the point of say, like somebody using the same technology for 20 years, like it's almost mm -hmm. hard to wrap your brain around. Yeah. Um, but those those decisions are super important and people will deal with them for years and it may affect their like daily life. So it's it's yeah. a really fascinating thing to consider when you think about uh, the man someone else or you, the future you managing a legacy code base that you're just establishing now. So my personal advice would be be very considerate of those choices. Yeah, and I think the um people we're often working with in a large organization or something like the higher you usually are up to, you know, maybe the CTO level or something in a large company, all you're really concerning yourself with is trying to make those much more abstract decisions about technology, about uh, how that's going to pan out in the long run, in much less reactionary, I suppose, to like what the cool new hot technology is. Uh, you've got to take a much longer term view and you just spend most of your time assessing whether all the parties, you know, choosing tech and things are doing it for the right reasons. And it's going to uh, actually be beneficial over the five, 10 year span or whatever. And what's funny is it sometimes it can seem directly in contrast to like being a fun place to work. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> People think there's definitely some correlation there. It's true. Yeah, because like if you're working on... You move fast and break things is fun if you're an engineer. Um, yeah, if you're do also working on things most likely to fail. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're trying to build stable things, like it's going to seem so boring. And um, it's worth knowing, like if you're going into a job or even if you're dealing with it for yourself, like there's merit sometimes in sticking with the boring and sticking with the tried and true. Um, and I think that's one of the things overall WordPress with its whole platform, yeah. like actually has a pretty big advantage. Um, and sometimes I think we lose sight of that. Yeah, no, I agree. Cool. Let's get off this thing. It's been an hour. Um, All right. it's been good to get back and, and chatting with you and hopefully, uh, We'll be on a regular schedule. If not, then uh, we'll, I'll try to fill it in with interviews and stuff. <laughs> ah, I wouldn't call it filler. Oh, sure, we can call it filler. You're obviously <laughs> the most special person on this podcast, Joe. So uh, I'll be I'll be back in a, a reasonable time zone before long. Sounds good. So, should we tell people to go to your website today or no? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. Sure. We, go, go, we have go. to spend another minute. What was this bet that you lost? Because if you go to Joe, oh, the, I tell, I'll UK. tell you the story because the the bet is even you won't believe it. So, <laughs> um, we have we just launched our new website, HTML.md. Go check it out. It's quite cool. Um, anyway, while as doing that, we had to get everybody in the company to write new bios for themselves within like two days or whatever, which I thought was completely unrealistic. So I posted in our general chat, I said, if we manage to get everybody to write their profile by Wednesday, then I will change my website to redirect to any URL that, that anybody wants. Um, <laughs> anyway, needless to say, nobody managed to do this uh, in two days, as I thought. However... It turns out that there was a typo in my previous message <laughs> where what I'd actually said was um, if we managed to get anybody to fill out their 
uh, profile oh, no. by Wednesday, and that'll do it. So anyway, that that was the stupid mistake that led me losing the bet. <laughs> so because Even though, someone changed it. Yeah, maybe somebody had in my Slack message. So you should have won the bet, but you lost the I bet. I should have, because exactly, of because of my own incompetence at spell uh, or at typing. Um, it wasn't so much of a misspelling, it's just uh, not paying attention. Uh, so anyway, check out my website, joehor.co.uk. Get a surprise. Check, check, check out the headers response. The new human made looks good. I didn't realize y'all launched it already. Oh, uh, might not have been announced yet. No, it has because we had a couple of posts go out. So, yes. I don't think it's been publicized, even if. The- no, it hasn't been publicized. We just had like that Tachyon post go out yesterday and then the out of office one, and they were using the new website. Hmm. I looked at them on mobile, and your old site, it, it was re- readable on mobile. So, I didn't pay too much attention to the new one but it looks really good i think i actually sent siobhan maybe some pictures of y'all because she was uh, asking me about stuff i think i think my photography might be on your 404 page actually i, I hope you're attributed <laughs> uh probably not <laughs> nope. you have no 404 page it just goes to the home page sad oh yeah but i think we do have a 404 i think it's just shouldn't be redirecting but it is for some reason hmm Okay, well, uh, congratulations on losing the bet. And uh, go. speaking of where that URL goes, go to postasscom slash jobs and get a job. We can finally say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and right. amazingly, so your URL goes to 10Up's hiring page. Um, and so your- human, well, <laughs> no, well, it does, <laughs> so does mine. Um but human made doesn't have a job listing on post status yet, so I don't know what the deal is. Yeah, somebody linked it like today and said we should get on this. So I'm sure you've got one in a draft email somewhere. Good. Uh, it's going pretty well so far. So if y'all are looking for a job, um, go to poststats.com slash jobs and find one. Human made will be listed there soon. All right. We'll talk to you later. Cheers.